Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the you can access the Anarchist World This Week for a number of weeks by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. If you want to know what Anarchy is all about, an anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures, which are based on equal decision-making power. That's direct democracy. It's a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. Simple concepts and why? Why those concepts? The word anarchos from the Greek, without rulers. Not without rules, without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You tackle the issue of inequalities in power and wealth. It's inequalities in power and wealth which give rulers the authority they have to control your life and the life of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people on the face of this planet in 2019. So it's a very simple idea. So interested in devolving power, that's breaking down power relationships, breaking down hierarchy, if you're interested in ensuring that everybody shares in a commonwealth, well, this is the program for you. If you're not, why waste an hour of your life? Move on to something else. I'm sure there'll be something that'll catch your fancy somewhere else. As I said before, this is about this program is about encouraging you to get up out of your couch, stop your click activism, and get out there in the real world. Get a bit of sunshine, a bit of rain, a bit of hail, and maybe, depending on where in the world you are, a little bit of snow, and actually get involved in activities which change the world. And in order to change the world and to change your own personal life, the situation you find yourself in, we need to understand the past in order to understand the present. We need to know the past to understand the present and to change the future. And you will find we do put some emphasis on historical precedents. Not that we follow historical precedents, but I think it's important that we understand what's gone on before us. Otherwise, we just reinvent the wheel. So when we start, look, I might as well start with the Tanaminoa More Borhina commemoration because that's on this Sunday at midday in Melbourne at the Tanaminoa More Borhina Monument, which was built in 2016 after a successful 10-year campaign which was waged by the Tanaminoa Mōbō Hina Commemoration Committee. It is the only significant monument in this country in a major city to the frontier wars. This is not about... This ceremony or commemoration is not about just remembering about the past. It's about understanding the present and changing the future because change 
is required. So it's this Sunday, that's the 20th of January, midday, Tanaminua Morbohina Monument, corner of Franklin and Victoria Streets in the city, right next to the old Melbourne Jail, next to RMIT, not far from uh, Melbourne Trades Hall. Can't miss it. Quiet setting, a monument to the uh, which uh, commemorates the hanging of these two men, Tanaminua Morbohina, for the heinous crime of resisting white colonisation. And since the very beginning, we've been using the slogan, lest we forget. That's right, lest we forget. This year, we are looking at extending this commemoration across Australia. As I said before, this commemoration is held yearly at the Tanaminoa Morbo Hina Monument. It was built in Melbourne in 2016 by the Melbourne City Council after a decade-long campaign by the Tanaminoa Morbo Hina Commemoration Committee. And uh, many of those original members on the committee have now died, people like uh, my late wife, Ellen Jose, Joy French, William French... So a number of people involved in the committee and peripherally have now died. I think it's important that this monument is there. Now this monument is the only major monument in a major Australian city that recognises the undeclared frontier war that occurred as Australia was colonised. The blood of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men, women and children has been spilt on this land and continues to be spilt on this land. They were brutally murdered because they had the audacity to fight to protect their people, their lands, their culture, their languages, their laws and their way of life. While this country and successive Australian governments leave no stone unturned to respect the sacrifices of Australians who have fought overseas on Anzac Day, the 25th of April, no such day has been put aside to pay our respects to those Indigenous men, women and children who did pay the ultimate price to defend their lands on this continent and the islands surrounding this continent. While many Australians will be celebrating the beginning of this slaughter on the 26th of January this year, many others feel uncomfortable about celebrating Australia Day on the 26th of January. And it's quite interesting when you think about it. There's a New Year's, there is a uh, Australia Day honours list, which is an honours list which is given out on Invasion Day, and there's a Queen's Birthdays honours list. How pathetic, but that's another story. On this invasion day, the tw- while a national debate rages about what should be the most appropriate day to celebrate the birth of this nation, no debate rages about setting a day aside to honour all those Indigenous men, women and children who died during the frontier wars. I know there's some people who think that it should be tagged on to the Anzac Day, but my own personal opinion is this is a 
this is a event that is so significant in the development of this country that a special day should be set aside which gives Australians the ability to pay their respects to those Indigenous men, women and children who died during the colonisation process. The Tanaman and Way Hina Commemoration Committee calls for the 20th of January, the day these Indigenous freedom fighters were publicly executed by the British Crown for resisting colonisation to be publicly recognised as First Nations Freedom Fighters Day. That's right. We would like to see the 20th of January recognised as First Nations Freedom Fighters Day. This will give us all Australians the opportunity to hold ceremonies like the one we hold every year at this monument to pay their respects to all those men, women and children who gave their lives resisting colonisation. Now I understand there's been a little bit of a uh, poll done by uh, the opponents of uh, the change of the date of uh, Australia Day and it's quite interesting to see that uh, almost three quarter of Australians you know, like the day and I can understand that because most people don't actually understand what's going on. We don't have that debate in our community. Occasionally the Prime Minister will saunter out and try to uh, you know, reignite the culture wars which were lost by conservatives and reactionaries in this country years ago. But the key is... The key is that we do have an opportunity. We make history. We change things. I remember 40 years ago, we were campaigning for the change of Australia Day to another day. And maybe 0.1% of the population was listening. Today, the nation is listening. But we need to take this further. And we didn't do all that effort and energy just to create some monument in the middle of a city that goes nowhere. The whole purpose of that struggle was to highlight the history of this country and to highlight there is unfinished business that continues to exist between Indigenous First Nation people and the rest of the community. That needs to be resolved. And in 2017, where representatives and delegates from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities from all over Australia met at Uluru, one of their demands was for truth-telling, to put the historical record down on paper to ensure that people understood what was happening. It's not about self-loathing. It's not about flagellation. It's about respect. It's about justice. It's about righting wrongs. So I encourage you, come and join us this Sunday, 20th of January, midday, the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Street in Melbourne. 
just next to the old Melbourne jail and RMIT. Midday, we have a number of uh, speakers. Carolyn Briggs, Boonarong, senior Boonarong elder and uh, patron of the Tunnamilui and Mulborhina Commemorations Committee will be uh, opening up the event with Welcome to Country and obviously she'll be making her own statements about the significance of this day. We have a number of... Uh, Robbie Forp, who's well known to listeners at uh, pump, um, Community Radio in Melbourne, will be speaking, another well-known Indigenous activist. We also have a number of Melbourne City Councils will be speaking, Councillor Cathy Oak, whose invaluable support in the early stages of this campaign set the ball rolling for the creation of this monument. We will also have Councillor... Rowan Lepart, another Melbourne City Councillor whose role in this campaign has been uh, central. We've got uh, Mr Jacob Rumbiak, the Foreign Minister for the West Papua Independence Movement who now currently lives in Melbourne, a political refugee and a uh, man who spent over a decade in prison, shot, tortured for... Uh, been part of the independence movement will also be speaking to give us a perspective you know about that struggle and obviously there'll be other speakers so come up on the day you're more than welcome unfortunately all those high profile invitations we sent out to prime ministers opposition leaders premiers governor generals of the state and federal level not even a response but that's what we expect because we create history they don't create history. They try to stop history being created. We are the engine of change. And it's our activities and our participation in events like this which create the momentum for change in our society, change which is based on justice. Speakers from 12 to 1 at 1 o'clock. We will walk down from the uh, monument to the Queen Victoria Marcus, which will be a busy, busy day, being a Sunday shopping day. And uh, we'll be going down there to pay our respects at what we believe is their last uh, resting site. And I encourage you to uh, bring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags on the day and uh, bring flowers both for the monument and both down there for Queen Victoria Markets. So, as I said before, this has been going for almost 15 years when we first started in the dim dark ages. I think it was 2004, 2004, I think, yeah. Uh, I think there are 11 of us there on a hot summer's day. Don't worry about the heat. Bring an umbrella or a hat. Uh, there's plenty of room to sit down. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, there's a, there's a strong possibility that the first hour of the ceremony will be broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. That's 855 on your AM dial if you're uh, listening this radio, the radio station in Melbourne, but also it's streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. All right, let's move on. What has the Yellow Vest movement in France, the Sudanese revolt in Sudan, And the unrest in Zimbabwe have in common. 
Well, the key to all this is the four horsemen of the postmodern apocalypse. The neoliberal nags. Privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, deregulation. We have a government in France which is trying exceptionally hard to drag France years after everybody else has been dragged onto that neoliberal bandwagon into the neoliberal camp. And workers in that country and other people in that country, both from the left and the right, faced with the economic consequences of their uh, El Presidente's jaunt into the neoliberal camp are striking back week after week after week. And these were initially spontaneous revolts which occurred because of people's anger at the inequalities which were being cemented in legislation in that country. Now, Sudan is quite an interesting case study of what happens when dictatorships go on the privatisation bandwagon. Sudan achieved independence from England or Britain in in 1956. In, in nine, on the 30th of June, 1989, a group of military men led by al-Bashir took control with assistance from the Muslim Brotherhood and they overthrew an elected government and imposed strict Sharia law in Sudan as a sop to their supporters in the Muslim Brotherhood. In 1999, the al-Bashir military dictatorship split from their Muslim Brotherhood uh, allies, many of whom were jailed, and went on a path of privatisation. Not privatisation through an open tender process, but privatisation where important state-owned assets were turned over to the family and friends of the generals who run that country. As we all know, Sudan was also involved in a bitter independence struggle with the South Sudanese. South Sudan was a United Nations protectorate over which Sudan was given nominal control until they were ready for independence. But since 1956, there have been a number of quite nasty warfare in that country which basically devastated the land and killed tens of thousands of people. The thing about South Sudan is it's very oil rich. 
The thing about Sudan is it's oil poor. Now, on the 19th of December this last year, on the 19th of December, as we saw in France and as we've seen in Zimbabwe, prices skyrocketed overnight. The price of bread increased by 300%. The price of fuel increased by almost the same level. And spontaneous demonstrations began in Sudan. Suburb after suburb in Khartoum, city after city in the rest of the country. And for the first time in 29 years, the al-Bashir military dictatorship has come under increasing pressure. Whether the military, which is al-Bashir's fiefdom, and militias, mainly based in the Darfur region, which are totally dependent on the al-Bashir family, are able to maintain power in light of this popular uprising, which has already caused over 40 deaths and hundreds of injuries, remains to be seen. Demonstrations continue day after day and pressure is increasing to rid the country of the al-Bashir dictatorship as the 30th anniversary of that dictatorship looms on the 30th of June this year. And the main reason Sudan finds itself in this situation is because we saw state assets, important state assets, which provided basic essential services to the population, basically becoming the personal fiefdom of a small group of officials who have ravaged that country in order to enrich themselves at the expense of the citizens of that country. In Zimbabwe, we were witness to the same events over many years. But in that situation, the military, who were Mugabe's major supporters for decades, saw the writing on the wall and actually uh, appointed a new military ruler, ruler who, through a bit of electoral fraud, was elected president. But as I speak, there are riots across Zimbabwe as people demand reforms. If we extend this analogy to Australia... We seem, we seem to have gone down a rabbit hole. Well, people in France and Sudan and Zimbabwe are reacting against the excesses of privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, deregulation. We sit on the sidelines. We sit on the sidelines. We wait for something to happen. We see the gap with the haves and the have-nots increasing. I had to go into the city this morning before I came to this radio program. 
had trouble walking over the bodies of people who are homeless. We see that 14% of the population now live under the poverty line. We see a situation where children of people who are on Social Security benefits, most of them will never get on, will never be able to climb the escalator, the social escalator through education because of the chronic underfunding of the public education sector. We see a public health sector struggling to meet the healthcare needs of Australians, especially the healthcare needs of those people, those Australians who are under increasing stress and and mental and facing mental hurdles. Because we're not isolated. We're not isolated. We are part of a community, whether we like it or not. And if we remove those supports which we created in order to ensure that everybody is looked after in our society, we see a disintegration of that society. And what do we do here in Australia? We point the finger at the other. And the government is very good at pointing the finger at the other. Last week it was Muslims. The week before it was people who wanted to get, you know, gay people who wanted to get married or, you know, people who wanted to gender, you know, marriage equality. This week, we've got perennial kicking bucket, Indigenous people, just goes on and on. We just point the finger. We don't seem to understand as a nation that the situation we find ourselves in is basically as a consequence of us reaping, reaping the benefits of 40 years of globalisation, corporatisation, privatisation, deregulation. And what does that mean in a simple sentence? It means the needs of the... Needs the the needs, the uh, profits of the few have been put before the needs of the many. So it's the few, not the many, which our parliamentary representatives have for decades been massaging, for decades been pushing, for decades passing legislation which ensures that any significant organisation in this country that can resist that onslaught is criminalised, like the trade union movement. It's almost, you know, to say you're a unionist is akin to say you're some type of a partner of an organised crime family in this country. To pass legislation which removes people's right to strike. The list goes on and on. So what are we doing about it? I mean, it's all very well to sit here and pontificate, and I can understand you, you know, vomiting. But... As you saw in Sudan and Zimbabwe and France, nothing changes without action. Nothing changes without those in authority being forced to account for the situation we find ourselves in. Think about it. I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interest. That's PIPSI, public interest before corporate interest. We want to become a major political force in this country, a major social force in this country, a major community force in this country. We'd like to become registered as a federal political party and we want to work both extra-parliamentary and via the parliamentary system. We want to use every legal mechanism available at our disposable to change this society, to push it in a direction where the needs of the many 
are put before the needs of the few. It doesn't matter how often I talk about this on this program, unless we get new members, especially members on the electoral roll, there is no way we'll be registered as a federal political party. We need at least 150 members on the Australian electoral roll. So if you're interested, we're doing a big push this year to increase membership and be registered as a federal political party, not before the next election, but before the end of the 2019. Now, in order to do that, we're updating our... Uh, Facebook page, which hopefully we'll be updating in the next few months. In the next few days, we'll be updating our web page. That's public interest before corporate interest. We will be reactivating in the next 24 hours our YouTube channel, public interest before corporate interest. And I've already began, as the secretary of public interest before corporate interest, I began retwittering on pibcpibci underscore au, pibcpibci underscore au. Because change doesn't occur unless people demand change. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scarner. I'm hosting today's program. Now, over the Christmas New Year period, while everybody else was relaxing at the beach, being a bit of a con... con, con you know, go, I went the opposite way into Central Australia. Now, I've been to Central Australia many times over the last 40 years. But even I, which travels the back roads, was a bit was shocked by the extent of the devastation being caused by climate change. We used to call them droughts. We now call it climate change. Human caused climate change. As far as I'm concerned, that debate is over. Creek after creek, river after river, dry. Lake after lake, salt pans. As we saw with the uh, fiasco on the Murray-Darling with the fish kills, it's quite fascinating, isn't it, that uh, although they had a little meeting in the last 24 hours, they didn't take any blame. It's just a natural occurrence. Well, maybe I'm stupid. Look, I must be stupid coming here every week and talking. I must be stupid. But that's why I went out there. I wanted to see if my own eyes. The thing is, private industry is nothing to offer regional and outback Australia. Nothing. Nothing. Currently, all we're seeing is some, you know, a few cows and a few sheep and obviously wheat. But we go out. But we have our, the great Mari darling Basin being pillaged through irrigation, through cotton farms, rice farms. Could you imagine that? Cotton farms and rice farms in the middle of Australia using precious water. Now, it's all very well for the experts in Canberra to say, well, it's of course the fish kills and what's happening is all part of the drought. Obviously, it's part of the drought. But if you're in drought and you're removing water from a natural ecosystem, you know, from an ecosystem, in order to grow crops that really, you know, could be grown somewhere else, what do you expect? What do you expect? 
you know, I had to laugh today. I was listening to this researcher talking about how wonderful water is. They did this amazing, in inverted commas, research where they listened for noises in a drought area and then when water was released into that area, noises of birds and animals and insects went off the went off scale. What do you expect? Water is the essence of life. So what what's what's my plans? For regional how's regional and outback Australia, how's it going to survive? Let alone prosper. And all those people who think we can have a billion people living in Australia, think again. You just go out go out a few hundred Ks from the major capital cities and see what you what you're hit with. Well, I think there is a future for regional and outback Australia, but that future lies in the new economy. It lies in renewable energy. It lies in aquaculture. I mean, the best thing you could do is close down the bloody farms, you know, the beef farms out there, which are using precious arterial water from the artesian bores to fatten cows to export. I mean, the best industries should be state-funded industries, things like solar farms. I mean, masses of sunshine. Masses of open spaces, solar farms, battery storage of energy, wind farms, tons of wind on a good day. And you could desalinate artesian bore water and recycle it over and over again for intensive aquaculture. As we see in South Australia where 25 acres of aquaculture, intensive aquaculture, provide 25% of the tomatoes in this country and almost 70% of the trust tomatoes you see in your local supermarkets and shops at very quite reasonable prices. But no, no. We have a national party that's wedded, that has been promoting deregulation, getting rid of all the regulations that were there to protect the environment and people. We have a national party which has been talking about destroying the trade union movement. We have a national party which has presided over the death of regional and outback Australia because they think that private enterprise is the solution to a problem to which there is no private enterprise solution. It's just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. The lack of imagination because what we have in this country is a parliament that's been captured by interest groups which dominate the economic landscape who are basically dinosaurs, who continue to be part of the problem, not the solution to the problem, and governments who are unwilling, unwilling and frightened to basically state what the problem is an attempt to resolve the problem, not by, you know, wasting money on bankrolling private companies, but actually creating state-owned assets. 
which provide for basic necessities in our community. Do you think we'd be in the same situation with the Murray-Darling today if, you know, we didn't allow, if we didn't allow private enterprise to dominate that debate, to make all the decisions, to push their barrow before everybody else's barrow, before the community's barrow? So if you do get a chance, go out there. Have a look. As I said, I've been there many times, but this year I was, even I was a little bit shell-shocked by what I saw. Listen, the, and the thing is, it's not going to change. You may get the occasional downpour, but the writing is on the wall for the agricultural sector in this part of Australia, in central and regional Australia. I can imagine wheat farming will continue to exist and possibly expand, but rice farming, cotton farming, cattle farming, and to a lesser extent, you know, uh, sheep, we need to reassess the whole thing radically. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano, and I'm hosting today's program. Look, I was very interested in the concept of uh, majority rule. You see, we have one deficiency, one major deficiency in the Australian Constitution. One major deficiency. And that's why, in many cases, we find ourselves in situations which other countries may not find themselves in. Because we have no arbitrary, we have no protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. And I usually laugh when people say, well, it's the majority rule. Well, it's not majority rule. It's majority rule. It should be majority rule in a situation where individuals have their rights and liberties protected. Mind, it may be after a very effective uh, a media campaign, a social media campaign and a legacy media campaign that majority of Australians believe that uh, two-year-old blue-eyed children should be executed because they're the spawn of the devil. Does that make it right? Of course it doesn't. As we've seen in this country, we had a situation where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were not citizens in the very lands which they had occupied for tens of thousands of years. As we continue to see in this country where we have legislation which denies people basic rights and liberties. Majority rule is all very well in a situation where there is protection, constitutional protection for the individual, where there are principles of association which protect the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. Does it make it right if 92% of the population believe that left-handed people are, you know, like they used to in the Middle Ages, are in the devil's creation and they should have their should be executed or driven out of town? Because the majority believes something is correct. doesn't make it correct. And that's what we're finding today with social media to a significant extent. I mean, you can find your family. 
you can find your family on social media. You can find people with like-minded opinions and you can shut out everybody else and you can live in that bubble. And that bubble can satisfy you personally. But that bubble, those little bubbles, you know, bumping each other are the cause of the friction we see today in our society where there's really little interaction between different sections of society. Little interaction. Even in the sporting field, we've got this inequality as far as seating arrangements go, which is based on how much money you can fork out. So we get the ridiculous situation with the AFL Grand Final, most likely the most uh, well-attended sporting event in the history of this country, that corporations take up 50% of the seats before even tickets are sold to members. So we see this growing inequality in society. And maybe, maybe the social friction that's occurring, the increasing tension that's occurring, the internalisation of that anxiety causing you know, individual and community issues and problems at a greater and greater degree when, you know, we've got, what, 16% of the adult population at some stage being on antidepressants? Think about it. We're all told it's an individual issue. Something wrong with you. It's a DNA problem. It's a genetic issue. How about the community component? How about the creation of society which isolates people from each other. How about the creation of society where fear, fear is generated to actually divide people and increase anxiety in order for short-term political gain? Just extraordinary. When you think about it, just an extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. Because we've allowed this to occur. We have allowed this to occur. And we will continue to allow this to occur unless we stand up and do something about it. As I said, I can pontificate for the next 200 years, which fortunately I won't be able to because I'll die. I can see you all breathing a sigh of relief. Now, on a more important note, you know, I mean, what we've spoken about today, just trivial stuff. Now, I've got, we've got to talk about the important stuff. Now, our beloved Prime Minister, I've forgotten who it is these days, but, you know, they change so often. But our beloved Prime Minister said that people, there should be a dress code for citizenship ceremonies. And I've been thinking, this is one of the big issues, isn't it? This is one of the big issues of the day, a dress code for citizenship ceremonies. Forget about the tens of thousands of people languishing in nursing homes who have been exploited by the privatised nursing home sector, which is making hay out of people's misery. Forget about a corrupt banking system, which basically is basically in the business of you know, turning a trick irrespective of the human, social and environmental consequences. Forget about the parliamentary majority giving more and more power, more and more wealth to fewer and fewer people in this country. Forget about the growing inequalities in this country. Forget about the casualisation of work. Forget about the inability of young people to get a foot in the housing market. Forget about wages stagnation. 
Forget about all these things. We have more important things for you and me to ponder. Really important stuff. Dress codes for citizenship ceremonies. And I, I agree with Mr Morrison, our current beloved Prime Minister. We should have a dress code. And I've been thinking about this for a long, long time. You know, I've been lying awake for weeks, even before the Prime Minister announced this 24 hours ago, for weeks trying to work out a compulsory, because that's what a dress code is, it's a compulsory. You're compelled to wear certain things. And I reckon, I reckon if you want this to be a real Australian citizenship ceremony, a dinky dye ceremony, that men be, must wear thongs, You've got to wear fongs. If you don't wear fongs, you're not a real Australian. So the citizenship ceremony, fongs, shorts. I'm not talking about Warwick Kappa 70s shorts. I mean, real shorts. You know, shorts, one or two beer stains on them, maybe a bit of barbecue sauce or tomato sauce. You need, you know, you need to show that you've been out barbecuing. I mean, that is the common Australian pastime. And maybe a singlet. Yeah, not those blue ones they used to have in the 50s and 60s, but, you know, a nice white singlet with some tomato stains on it, tomato sauce stains on it, and a bit of grease coming down the front. And you wouldn't wear a hat because only girls wear hats, don't they? That's right, because you're a real man. So that's what I reckon should be the dress standard for men. In citizen, you know, I mean, it should be a standard. If you don't turn up in fongs, dirty shorts and a dirty singlet, you're not getting your citizenship, mate. You're not up to it. You're not one of us. Piss off. Now, I've been thinking very, very, you know, intensely about what women should wear to these citizenship ceremonies, you know. And I reckon fongs or maybe flip-flops. Flip-flops. Maybe flip-flops or a fong. I mean, we'll accept flip-flops. And we may even accept the occasional lug boot on a woman, all right? Shorts. It is summer. Shorts, but clean. Not, not, not dirty, the blokes, clean shorts, and maybe a halter top, you know, with a little mu- with your muffin top popping over your over your belt on your sh- popping over your shorts. I reckon that'd be good. And maybe the obligatory tattoo, like you know, Joy loves Jim, and then Jim crossed out and Jack put in under Jim, or maybe Joy loves Jim, Jim crossed out and Judy put under Jim. You know, I think I think there should be a little tattoo somewhere, which is, you know, makeup, nah, nah, maybe, maybe a little bit of makeup, but not too much. Lip, lippy, oh, I don't think we should have lippy at, at um, citizenship ceremony. So I reckon if they're not willing to follow that dress code, these foreigners who want citizenship, who want the right to vote, who want to change the society, if they're not wanting to feel, if they're not willing to follow the dress code, we, we don't want them there. We don't rot them there. So I'd like to thank Mr Morrison for uh, lifting debate in this community, for actually looking at the big issues in society. It's good to see that he, he knows what the big issues are and he knows what real Australians want in our society. Thank you, Mr Morrison. See you in church next week. You listen to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Justice Scarner. Now, I know you're bored already. The campaign has been going on for two years, but uh, 
Public Housing Everybody's Business campaign. This is going to be one of the major activities of public interest before corporate interest, the Anarchist Institute over and the Anarchist Institute over the next twelve months. Why? Well, historically, housing has always been an issue. Now, you may not remember this, but I'm a little bit familiar with the Victorian situation because I've been living here for decades. But when the Eureka Revolt occurred in 1854, one of the underlying issues was access to land. At that stage, about, what's that, about 20 years after colonisation process began, Aboriginal people had been subdued. Their numbers had been reduced from about 100,000 to less than about 2,000. Um, so they weren't a problem, were they? You know, we got rid of them, poisoning, you know, all that type of things you do to people when you want to take their land. But the issue was land ownership because the 700 squatters who had claimed Victoria for their own did not want to give up their sheep runs without a battle. Put the clock forward another 164 years or 65, you've got the same situation. Access to housing is the single most important situation we face today. Especially in Australia. It is an essential important situation. Because the Australian dream of owning a quarter house, you know, quarter acre block and a three bedroom house, it's gone out the window, boys and girls. Even if you wear fongs, shorts and t shirts or a holder top, you're not gonna get it. Because of wage stagnation. But more importantly, because housing over the fast past forty years is the result of the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution has been turned into a commodity has been turned into a speculative uh, orgy. That's right. In the last 25 years, housing prices in the major capital cities have increased by an average of 450 to 500%, while wages have increased by less than 100%. This means that people have to take out bigger and bigger mortgages, and pay higher and higher rents to get a roof over their heads. And at the same time this has been occurring, we have seen successive state governments privatise public housing. And two state governments which are really good at it are both the New South Wales government and the Victorian government. They're extraordinarily good at it. They're extraordinarily good at privatising public housing. Extraordinarily good at it. Really good at it. Number one, we love them for it. Yeah, unbelievable, isn't it? So now we have a situation where about 40% of every dollar which people earn or receive in Social Security benefits is spent on housing, whether it's rent, whether it's mortgage repayments. That's 40%. Can you imagine the impact that has on the economy? Could you imagine the impact that actually has on the way people live? It's an extraordinary impact to have a bit of shelter over your head. 
extraordinary impact. So all I can say is that, as I said, we're going to make housing, public housing a major priority in this state and hopefully other people in the rest of Australia will do the same thing because a strong public housing sector increases competition in the marketplace. Here I am using capitalist analogies. You increase competition, you decrease rents because if fewer and fewer people need private rental accommodation because they're in public housing, bingo, rents decrease. Rents decrease, investors leave the market. Properties at the lower end of the market fall in price. Young people have the opportunity to enter the mortgage market. It's very simple. Where's the money, Joe? Stamp duty, boys and girls, stamp duty. Over $6 billion was raised last year in Victoria. If you quarantine that money for public housing and your spot purchase or build, you can house 100,000 Victorians every year in public housing. You could house at least a half a million people across the country in public housing if stamp duty revenue was quarantined for public housing. So why shouldn't a tax which is levied on people purchasing property be used to expand and maintain the public housing sector? It's very simple, and that's the problem. We're told everything is complex. It's not. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Don't forget, 24th January, midday, Tanamino More Bohina commemoration at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street at the Monument, 12 to 1, from 1 till 2, down at the Victoria, Queen Victoria Markets. Don't forget, 6th of February, the Wednesday Action Group is back in action. The first activity will be outside the IPA Office of the Institute of Private Affairs at 410 Collins Street in Melbourne. Don't forget the 6am, 6am to about 8.30am rally on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. First Wednesday in February, public housing, everybody's business. Facebook page, Toscano for the public. Anarchismedia.org, Pibsi, P-I-B-C-I.net. Can't come to the Tunnel Mall Bohina commemoration? Go to Tunner, T-U-N-N-E-R, Mall, M-A-U-L, Dot com, tunnermall.com. YouTube, public interest before corporate interest. Twitter, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week via the community radio station on your local community radio station. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.